It's getting cold out. I'm looking at my uh, the thermometer on my watch right now. It says it's 18 degrees outside. It's going to take a little bit to get me to a concert hall, to get me all bundled up and to do that. I put my snow pants on just to come here. <laughs> so as as much as it's hard to get out of the get out get out of the house especially during the holiday season, you know, there's a lot of competition out there. Going to hear a classical music concert might not be at the top of the list with a little bit of free time, but what if instead of just hearing a composer's music, you got to interface with a composer, maybe even in a happy hour setting? Doesn't that sound happy to you? I'm listening. <laughs> well, that's one of the things that our uh, latest partner uh, has really systematized in a really incredible way, putting composers and audiences in the same sort of happy hour space for a conversation, question and answer, and a larger engagement of this art form. That mm. comes from an organization called Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wing man by day they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films but by night they're on a mission a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was is and can be i'll talk a little bit more about salestina and thank them after our introduction here but that that really is exciting to me to think about we're at the point in this thing called classical music where we're breaking down walls we're even breaking down that fourth wall of the of the uh, orchestral stage and putting composers and audiences in very comfortable settings and letting it all happen it's a, and it's, it's an exciting time letting them duke it out <laughs> any uh any any compose i won't ask you if there are any composers in general you'll like to have happy hour with but uh, as much as i want to know would it be a, a two night a two drink evening would you just go ahead and go for it and take the shots how do you approach that, that sort of environment Probably what the composer you love shots with judd greenstein um i don't know maybe beers with michael torkey yeah shots with judd greenstein i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure judd would would take you up on that <laughs> but you know when we talk about broadening uh, this definition of what classical music is you know as salestina uh, does as we do here on triloquy i think it really leaves room to broaden our definition of the christmas carol i think Christmas has become American enough, commercialized enough for us to consider uh, a different sort of canon when it comes to this time of year, right? L we do. L last week, we already you know, affirmed that Mariah Carey is the queen of Christmas. She's got a lock. <laughs> but there are a number of more contemporary Christmas tunes that I would surely put in that uh, category of American classical. And you know, for me, one of them, one of the most important, I always return to this album every holiday season, is the Jackson 5 Christmas album. Mm -hmm. When when I say that, Jackson 5 Christmas, any particular uh, Christmas carols, classical Christmas tunes about this ensemble that come to mind? I saw Santa kissing... I saw mommy kissing. You saw Santa, Santa kissing who? <laughs> kissing mommy last night. I got him backwards. It's, it's um, something. Yeah. It's something about. Let, let's let's listen to a little bit of, of that track and then sort of break down what this piece of music is saying because I think it's worth a revisit. But the tune itself, undeniable. Right. Wow, mommy's kissing Santa Claus.
Daddy had only seen. I mean, no, that that means the Christmas tree is toe up. The presents are everywhere. I mean, <laughs> the places that would have been goes. Santa Claus's ass is what it would have been. Is that not the lyric? If if only Daddy would have seen. <laughs> but here's the thing. Daddy is Santa Claus. I Daddy know. has dressed up as Santa. Then but, why are you but, why are you going to these other but places? But from the perspective of this child, that is not Daddy up there. That's that's Santa Claus. Yeah. Mm. So you're saying to traumatize this poor kid, thinking that his mom's stepping out. I think there's something to that. Of course, I love the aesthetic of the tune, and it's one of those classic Christmas songs. And I'm not saying it should go the way of "Baby, It's Cold Outside" necessarily. I'm not saying that it's a problematic tune, but when you just Think about what's happening in, mm. in this moment. It's mm. more like, first of all, why is daddy dressed up as Santa Claus and the kids are already asleep? I mean, we're talking about some, we were talking about something kind of interesting, right? <laughs> what else did they leave out? It, was there some, uh, was there some booze left out with the cookies? That, that, that could be a part of it. Later on in, in the song, you know, certainly in the uh, Michael Jackson, the, the Jackson 5 uh, uh, version of the track, He's telling his brothers, and they're like, oh, no, you're lying. And so the child is like, yes, yes, actually, da, 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 you know, so we're, we're talking about gaslighting children, you know, <laughs> not only traumatizing them, but making them feel like they crazy. Confu I don't even know how I would address the topic of Santa Claus with little kids. You know, I, I think I about was about that. to say, let's forget all of this. Let's talk about how we're introducing children to this concept in the first place. Because, <laughs> you know, I have si my siblings, you know, uh, t uh, two of my siblings, now three, have uh, kids. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm I'm not, I'm going to let them be the parent. You know, I'm just the gay uncle over here out of my own business. But I, I, I don't think my children would be learning about Santa Claus. I mean, we were certainly growing up never taught that Santa Claus brought presents like my my parents made it clear that they worked hard and put presents under the tree damn it we bought this right you know <laughs> i remember being dubious you know and he's supposed to leave something for every kid all around the world and i remember going but how you never quite believed <laughs> yeah i wasn't yeah i wasn't i wasn't that and the tooth fairy and easter bunny i was like mm, i'll take the chocolate but i don't know i mean but on the other hand with this song Maybe we're talking about free love, or you know, people can't be owned, and and all of that stuff. What do you what do you think about that? This, this so, was the seventies, right? With the so uh, mom is, you're saying mom is eth ethically non monogamous, <laughs> sure. With stepping stepping in with mm -hmm. Santa, mm -hmm. so obviously this kid is up way too late. <laughs> well, you know, he did acknowledge he's he snuck out of bed. You mm -hmm. know, I, I don't know. I will probably call the cops. I'm just going to say it. If I sneak out of bed and it's a man in a, in a red suit kissing my mom, no, it's, it's going to be some, some problems. You know, there are, um, you know, this podcast is called Triloquy. Oh, here we go. There are many radio stations. There are many organizations that won't even play child Michael Jackson, much less, you right. know, more grown up Michael Jackson for some of the accusations and the things that he went to court for no. uh, over the course of his life. Uh, I'm sure there are even people who will call me to the carpet for giving, you know, this classic track a little bit of room here. Hmm. What do you think? Do we push Christmas carols like this? Let's stick specifically with the composition. Do we stick, uh, push Christmas carols like this to the side? Or, you know, do we give this the same treatment as we do things like, you know, Handel and Wagner and all of those people? You know, they're always venerated. Men, men, men for whom the hearsay doesn't apply. You know, we're, we're taught to really just venerate yeah, them. Yeah, I don't know when the last time I heard a, a child Michael Jackson sing on the radio, but 
that I more attribute to the loss of stations that play that format, mm. like the oldies stations yeah. or, you know, on, <clears throat> on top 40 radio, when we got Mariah Carey's yeah. hits for Christmas, mm -hmm. you'd never, they would never throw in a Michael Jackson, a, a Jackson five track. So beyond just sort of the, the drama of things you think is the aesthetic that is just not going to make it. Uh, through through the through the pipes anymore. I, I feel like it already has had trouble making it through the pipes. Maybe the issue that you're talking about is the reason why, because I haven't heard that. Sure, maybe I'm just old fashioned, and that's a that's an aesthetic that people mm. don't really get in. But I don't know. To me, it sounds exactly like Christmas. Mm -hmm. So if the top forty, or you know, we don't really have oldies stations anymore. At least you know, not the well, we have oldies stations. We just call them classical music. But you know, I, I understand what you're saying, like the the old 20s, 30s yeah, pop you, tunes and you all wait, that sort of thing. <laughs> you wait until the music you listen to in high school is on the oldies stage. So it sounds like classic performances, like I saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. You know, be, what if we saw Daddy Kissing Santa Claus? Now we really got a song. <laughs> but, you know, but, <laughs> I, but, I remember but, like in fourth grade singing that in the Christmas program. I saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. It's not going to make it through the top 40, uh, you know, not this Probably arrangement not. of her or whatever. So that must mean this classic track deserves space on classical radio. What do you think? <laughs> I feel like there's more room for a leeway during the holiday season. I mean, if you just had a woman singing plain, beautiful voice, non uh, operatic, do you hear what I hear or something, you mm -hmm. know, a uh, voice and piano or voice and ensemble, there would be room for that where there wouldn't be room for just natural uh, contemporary vocals in June so you're or talking, February. You're talking like a, a soprano piano version of I Saw Mama Kissing Santa Claus? I'm saying during the Christmas season, how about we lighten up and enjoy the Christmas season and broaden that definition of classical to include this classic composition? I think that's where we... That's where we got to go. That's mm. the that's the uh, work of so many organizations. That's certainly the work of us here on the Triloquy Podcast. Happy holidays. Here's Opus 177. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 177. Thank you so much for tuning in. To returning listeners, thank you so much for continuing to support this show. We could not do it without you. Thank you so much for continuing to listen week after week and for all of your support. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music, the concept, the aesthetics that have been traditionally attached to it, and we sit it next to the rest of the world. We approximate this idea of classical music to think far beyond the concert hall toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing classical music. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to check out past opuses and to donate, just go to our website. That address is T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. Before we get too far away, from Jackson 5 Christmas albums. For me, it's, you know, we've been doing double musical intros. So I just want to share a little bit of my favorite Jackson 5 Christmas tune. It's the classic Give Love on Christmas Day. Oh, hmm. I listen to this opening and I just feel cozy inside. People may 
That's that's some spirited hi hat. That's some Christmas spirit hi hat right there. I am there. not as oh. familiar with this track. Really? No. Oh my gosh, just so warm. Go check out the okay. entire album. I mean, okay. Christmas time here on Triloquy. You know, again, as we're talking about expanding this idea, this definition of classical music, I mentioned earlier, we have a new partner, Salastina, that's doing the same thing. I'm going to have their website in the description of this. I mentioned the uh, happy hour. So coming up in February, you know, December and January are a little busy. So coming up in February, they're, they're having their happy hour number 110 with composer Derek Sky. I don't know if you've heard of Derek Sky. Yeah. yeah, I've, I've, I've recently learned about Derek Scott. Really incredible music and yeah. incredible things. Well, on um, February 4th, it says here, join us for a complete performance of Derek Scott's As I Heard When I Was Young before we recorded in studio. This event is in partnership with the Decamera Society at Mount St. Mary's University. You can learn more information on this February 4th event at salestina.org. That's if you're over on the West Coast. But more about Salestina. Um, as as uh, I read earlier, you know, their classical music swing man, really trying to make this thing called classical music relevant and mm -hmm. expanded. It says here, classical, contemporary, Baroque. If John Cage's infamous 433 counts as classical music, then what doesn't? I agree. <laughs> I agree with y'all over there at Salestina. Good point. When it comes to our programming, our guiding principle is simple. We got to love it and we got to want to share it. So I'm just really looking forward uh, to partnering with Salestina uh, in these next uh, few months and telling y'all all about all of the incredible things that they're doing over there with this thing called classical music. We have Aaron Siegel from Experiments in Opera joining me in the third movement today. They're doing some serialized TV drama opera, which I think is really interesting. More on cool. that in the third movement. We got music by Tanya, uh, Tanya Leon coming up and Margaret Bonds. Uh, you're bringing some of her music into the second movement. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll have our usual you know, conversations as we do in the final movement uh, this week. But for right now, we're going to go ahead and jump into movement one. I'm going to get us started this week with our accidental, Scott. I'm Hit going it. to give us a sharp. I'm reading here from Chicago Sun-Times. The headline, new WFMT program brings fresh, young, and hopefully hip perspective to classical music. WFMT, for folks who don't know, uh, is um, the classical music station down in Chicago. Uh, not only a, a local uh, bastion of uh, public radio, but really making a name for themselves on that national scale. I have um, a show coming up uh, through uh, WFMT in 2023. They're doing all sorts of really incredible things. And lately, they have taken two of their uh, newest talents, LaRob K. Raphael and Christina Lynn, to co-host a show called Sounds Classical. So the first thing, you know, I, I want to throw at you, you know, as a radio professional, we can talk a lot about updated 
programming to cultivate a newer audience, maybe even a younger audience. But what do you think the host has to do or what role does the host have in that equation? Does it matter who the host is? Is it all programming? Is it a mix of both? What's your what's your perspective on that? Well, yeah, the host does play a key role in it. And I can tell you from the last PRPD, Public Radio Program Directors Conference, where I attended, the first main stage, main session was Media Habits of Gen Z. And uh, it was a, uh, a research uh, firm that basically did a whole bunch of interviews. We had segments and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, n- one of the things that I noticed, it, it, it was so clear that if the person was too far away from a Gen Zer's appearance or age, mm-hmm. as far le- as being older, the less interested they were. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, like, the older you are, so me, a fifty-two-year-old white guy, um, there isn't much that I would say that they would be interested in. Sure. So obviously you want to get somebody that understands that perspective, maybe has a better handle on the vernacular uh, and is going to use this, you know, use it in a, in a way that will appeal to the listener that you're going for. So if they're going, well, well, I was going to ask, what are your ideas then on the converse? Is it uh, 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 an unreal expectation for the 52 year old white man to be interested in what the Gen Zer is saying? Well, is that a is that an approach that you would uh, argue for or or back up on mm. the on the radio side? It's a tougher sell there, but like I said before, I try to give the listeners more credit because I know that a lot of them out there are silent, yep. but they are rather adventurous and they'll go with you on certain places. Yeah, you know they they might keep them for a few episodes, and some might decide to not tune in again. I don't know. Mm. Hmm. I think that must have been a conversation that happened at WFMT. I mean, they right. it's not like there's some, you know, off the beaten path place. I mean, this is the one of the huge radio stations of Chicago, you know. And another uh another panel that I went to at PRPD was the Intelligence Squared debate where Eric Newsom uh brought up basically I started to put together an idea of what was missing by going to all these different panels. And what I ended up with was one of the key things that's missing in public radio for a younger audience is conflict Hmm. Uh, um, or the hot take, the strong opinion and the willingness to stand up for it. You know, um, it seems like a lot of programs are devised in a way to keep an existing audience. So what WFMT is doing here, I think, uh, goes with what uh, Eric Newsom talks about. We need to take more chances. Yeah. The fact that they're putting it on at eight o'clock on a, on a Friday night, that is a time where their listenership is naturally high, but that's also traditionally been an area where public radio listeners real, really in, are intently listening. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that that's a, it's a bold, I'm not, I don't want to say it's a bold choice. I think it's a smart uh, a, a smart risk to take. Sure, sure. I'm thinking, you know, that time slot, 8 p.m. On, I'm, I'm going to read a little bit from this article in a second, but that that time slot, 8 p.m. on a Friday night, I'm thinking about uh, going 
to a concert, maybe going to a, a an orchestral concert, something you don't typically do. So to prep for it or to get yourself in the spirit, you know, you turn on the classical radio station or maybe let's say it's a Friday night and you decide you're going uh, to a fancy dinner. You're all dressed up and you want to, you know, uh, do the <laughs> do the whole, uh, not cafe, but the, the role playing throughout the evening of being oh. a, a fancy, you know, person. You're going to cos- cosplay. cosplay <laughs> right. So you turn on the classical station and you actually hear something that you can relate to. I think that's really, that's really great. I, I'm, I feel a couple of ways about this new show being on Friday evening, because I don't know, well, you know, I, I don't want to add work to, uh, to Christina and Lara, but I don't know this something, this, this talk radio style radio show to me sounds like a, a daily thing and an evening drive thing that could be really successful. But, but I guess, you know, trying it out for one night a week is a, a, a nice way to, you know, stick your toe in the pool before you just cannonball in. Keep in mind that once you start, this is something when we started the podcast, you know, if we say that we're going to do it on a weekly basis, well, we've started it that way and now you got to do it. Yeah. So Probably, my guess is that the the folks at WFMT probably have a blueprint or some sort of a roadmap that they want to yeah. follow. You know, they'll they'll put it here and then maybe expand it over to the weekend and you know grow it. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me read a little bit uh, from this article. It says the show featuring Christina Lynn thirty one and Larob K Raphael twenty nine is meant to offer a fresh, down to earth, and yes, fun approach to classical music at the same time as it expands the very idea of what the genre can be. I think we can all agree, Lynn said, that sometimes if you're not in the classical music world, it can seem hard to reach or unapproachable in certain ways. You associated with these grand music halls, these intellectual things, and these bigger than life composers who are sometimes not very relatable. Rather than focusing on Beethoven's lifespan or the number of Mozart piano concertos, mm-hmm. Raphael wants to explore the emotional aspects of classical music. Quote, yep. how do we feel when we hear this piece? Why do we like playing this piece on the radio? What does it evoke? I really think, you know, those are cool approaches and really thought-provoking approaches. I guess for me as a presenter and um, uh, when I do radio, the how does it make you feel approach is a challenge <laughs> because I think it's just hard for me to make it seem genuine. I mean, if we're really talking about a piece of music that is speaking to a human experience or one that I can approximate to that, I think the context can help me make that how does it feel sort of break that that sort mm-hmm. of engagement. But the music itself, I don't know. It's it's not so easy for me. Are, are you good at the pulling the heartstrings with the... That is my bag. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so this sounds like a good approach to, to you. Well, also, if you're talking about trying to hit a younger multicultural audience, right? They have a really good shot of doing that with people, hosts that are around that age. They're probably going to be talking about the same memes and all this stuff that you're throwing around. It's a much more approachable way for a younger person to get into it, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Now you are—you already mentioned the uh, the uh, pro, the program manager, the general manager, uh, yeah. George Preston. It says here, Lynn and Raphael emerges ideal deal choices as the hosts. Preston said because they are quote super creative. 
at classically trained musicians, Lynn a trumpeter and Raphael a singer, and because of their wonderful chemistry and curious minds. So they uh, they both went to DePaul University, but they met at WFMT, uh, and you know apparently they just get along really well. Uh, Lynn even uh, says that here in the article. I know that the friendly chemistry is, you know, really great for people to uh, engage. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the more, I don't know, arm wrestle style chemistry? You know, hosts that are at odds, like people think we are all the time. You know, <laughs> that could, that <laughs> people really- people really twist my arm. They say I'm, I'm bullying you on this show, and I don't see it. <laughs> hmm. You're bullying me, if anything. That's funny. <laughs> but anyway, no, I've, but, but I've had. You- I've had, you know, I've had people ask similar questions, but the thing is, is that, that it's not about that. It's about giving space. We give each other the space to say what we want to say. So do you think and, a, a friendly host to host sort of chemistry as they've identified it uh, for the show at WFMT? That's, I think that's a good starting point. But when I, when I think about uh, talk radio, I, I think about a little bit of spice. I think about a little bit of tension every now and again. Like I mentioned five minutes ago, the thing that, that is missing is the conflict, the, the hot take or the strong opinion that you're willing to defend. Yeah. So uh, I would imagine they're going to do the boiling frogs approach, which they will slowly increase something, some spice like that until you don't even remember when it wasn't that way. I cannot say that I, as folks who've been listening to this podcast for a while know that I'm not typically a boil the frog slow sort of person. Um, I think this opportunity is so huge that if I were in the shoes of one of these hosts, I would go along with the boil the frog slowly approach because if this is really you know what it can be, it's unprecedented. I mean, uh, talk radio is just key when it comes to radio in general, you know, outside of public radio, but even within public radio, when we talk about shows like uh, Car Talk and um, what are the other, uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway, and those sorts of things, more more dialogue-based radio, there is a deep precedent for that, just not when it necessarily comes to classical mm-hmm. radio. So I don't know. I, th- I think it's huge. I would I would boil the frog slowly with this. I would I would pull my tongue back and, <laughs> and and do what I have to do to stay on the live radio in this in in this uh style. But it's it's really something. Yeah, I, I I hope they aren't taking this opportunity for granted. It's uh it's a really strong choice because you know the, the it's primarily music, correct? Yeah WFMT. Yep. I haven't looked at their program schedule or anything like that. But if you're gonna put a talk-based show in a place that is traditionally orchestral or wordless or whatever, yeah. that's a that's a bold choice. What do you have to it's say? Good risk. What, what, what are your ideas about what this uh, could do, how this could impact existing or long-time talent in classical radio? I mean, are you ready? If, if you uh, were at work and got a memo that there's a shift toward more talk-style block would you volunteer? Are, are you ready for, for to, to be that sort of radio host, that sort of DJ on the radio? Maybe, but I think really my contributions are going to be bigger behind the scenes. I have a really strong interest in, uh, I would I would like to uh, do more talent management, I guess, you know, to mm. find people that will do the shows that will bring in the new listeners and developing those shows. I really think that I'd, I'll, I'd be a better project manager than I would be online, um, on the air. Hmm. I, That's I, just my thought. I, I'm kind of there with you. If you know, if 
if I had the choice of doing this type of show or putting on a 20 something to do this type of show who I thought could really do it and, you know, have the chops, I would definitely do that. At the same time, I think a uh, an industry-wide shift toward more talk-style radio, at least for a specific block in classical radio, I think that could sharpen the the tools of a lot of these hosts that are used to just preparing maybe, the break and, and doing it that way. Maybe if there's a three-minute segment within the show of you know the, the retro block, we, let's bring Blank in here so he can talk about where this sample came from. <laughs> or, or let it be what? a rotating thing with all <laughs> sure. of the hosts, you know? sure. Yeah, um, but no, I think that it would be better service to the to the listener that you're trying to reach to have somebody that's more like the listener. Yeah. What what is a what's a Gen Z you're going to care about what I have to say? And and again, just to return to you know the converse to that that I asked earlier, I, I think there's you know something to be said about the willingness to take the so-called risk to have these you know 50s, 60s, 70s roll their eyes at the at the young people on mm-hmm. the radio or, or change the channel. I yep. guess at the end of the day, they don't have anywhere else to go if they, if they want to listen to that type of right. music on live radio. So I guess that's a privilege on the side of the the radio stations. Truth. But I just, I think it's, it requires an open mind. I think the older people got to, you know, let let the young people get their shit off sometimes. I think the younger people, you know, uh, if, if I was offering advice to Raphael and Lynn, I would say to roll with the punches, you know, as as you say, people decide in the first 30 seconds of hearing you whether they love you or hate you. Yep. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of that, especially with this new approach. But if you stick with it, I mean, with with time, as that track record grows again, as you say, you're going to get that audience you're looking for, at least hopefully so. The one thing I'm sorry about is it's going to start this weekend, December 9th. And uh, of course, I will be working. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to tune in. I wonder if they'll maybe they'll archive it. Or, or you can just have it on on mute, and then when you're playing whatever you play, you know you can yeah. see what one of your competitors is up to. I might have to do that. <laughs> just one more thing I want to uh, point out. Uh, it says here in this article, a focus on sounds classical. That's the name of the show. Is asking what classical music means in the 21st century, um, and examining how the genre's boundaries continue to bend and expand. Quote is actually really hard to nail down an answer. To that in today's world, Lynn said, that's what we discovered. Is it a very Eurocentric perspective? Is it just Western music? Is it just notated music or orchestral music? We want to include other voices that just uh, that just what we have always learned about more than we've uh, always learned about. We do a lot of this tap dancing. When it's, I, I shouldn't say tap dancing, but just circling around this question of how do we define classical music in today's world? I think a lot of that dialogue and that so-called nuance is rooted in the respectability of the aesthetic. Here on Triloquy, we talk about music that you can connect to some foundational aspect of culture mm-hmm. and people is classical. You know, Jackson 5 Christmas can go on classical radio as far as I'm concerned. You know, I've done things like that in some of the positions uh, that I've held. I think that um, even here is is keeping is is already building a wall. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, again, bowling the frog slowly. If this is how we get there, you know, to a much broader, uh, just a completely decolonized approach to this idea of classical music. If we have to get there slowly, that's fine. But I think 
you know, the, the more I'm seeing people come up with things that try to redefine classical music, it seems like at the end of the day, that's that barrier. There's a respectability to the approach, to the aesthetic that we're just afraid to move away from. Just a few years ago, I remember you being against the Boiling Frogs idea. Like I said, like I've, we have I've evolved. You would, you would say things like, well, how much longer are we going to have to wait? We've already waited right. 400 years. Right. Hmm. You know, I, I, I appreciate you're trying to call me to the carpet. That's fine. But <laughs> I'm just at commenting. The end, at, at, the, at the end of the day, this feels really unprecedented to me. Now, th that is not to say that I think these hosts should be kowtowing to, you know, all of the traditions. If anything, this is the opportunity to really, you know, push things over uh, programmatically. So mm -hmm. when it comes to boiling the frog slowly, I guess I'm talking more about uh, the dialogue and the approach to communication and the approach to hosting more than I'm talking about the actual uh, pieces of music that mm -hmm. are that are platformed. I do think it would be a missed opportunity to force these hosts to talk about the traditional repertoire. This is an opportunity to really humanize uh, new music, more contemporary music, and to make a case for it as a means of attracting a younger audience. People who really care about the genre, or really care about uh, public radio as, as an institution should want it to survive. Mm. This should look like the future to those supporters. So, you know, let me just clarify. I'm, I'm not talking about the the aesthetics or the pieces of music. I'm saying don't don't cuss on the live radio or don't, you know, talk about, you know, whatever mm -hmm. we talk about here on Triloquy, mm -hmm. at least in, in the way we do. I think that's more of what I'm I'm getting at. Did you see anything here in the story? Will they, will they be excerpting music at all or will it be 100% talk well we happened to you know I, I i chimed into wfmt before we cut on the mics and we caught the uh promo for the show that's yeah. that's running it sounds like there will be music but uh, ex uh expanded breaks extended for folks who yeah. don't know you know the break is what happens when there's not music being played so i think it's I think it's cool. Like it says here, uh, quote, we get along very well. Lynn said, we have fun talking about music. We're laughing. He's a singer, so he's singing the music. We're getting emotional. And I think that dynamic between us is really exciting. It's different than what you normally hear on WFMT. So mm -hmm. we're going to see. It premieres uh, this Saturday, December 9th. Friday. Uh, uh, this Friday, Friday December yep. 9th. And uh, good luck to everybody. Congratulations to Lynn and LaRob and everyone up there at WFMT. We're looking forward to uh, y'all's approach to an expanded definition of classical music and classical radio. I wonder if they would want to do a podcast. Well, it kind of sounds like a live podcast, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to, um, but before we move on to the next accidental, we can talk about expanded programming and new approaches and what we're doing, but what happens when you really just drop the needle? Shall we go over to WFMT.org and see what they're airing see right what's now? See on the, on the air. Yeah, let's do. How will this, what we're, whatever is about to happen, again, we're doing this live, as this is about to happen, well, what's playing right now <laughs> have an impact on your opinion on how far this radio, uh, new radio program can go. Mm -hmm. Maybe the extra uh, conservative, traditional classical stuff is playing now because, you know, on Friday night, we're going to get all the sniggling and giggling from the from the young people. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. But before I even go over to the website and press play, what? Why? Why does this matter? Why? Why does dropping the needle 
um, why, why, why is that something that you think uh, because it's going to give about. you a good idea of a, it's, it gives you a cross section of what you can expect. All right. Well, here we are over at uh, WFMT.com. Exclu- excuse me. Uh, just dropping the needle here to check in, to check in to see what's going on on the radio. Let's take a listen. There of Prokofiev's Fifth Symphony, his Opus 100, Symphony Number no. Five by Sergei Prokofiev, performed there by the Royal Concert Cabal under the baton of Maestro Vladimir Ashkenazi. It's mm-hmm. like riding a bike. These back announces. <laughs> what do you think? Is that the aesthetic? So we talk about um, tune in, tune out. So mm-hmm. for, for for folks who don't know, uh, explain that radio concept. If you start to air a piece of music or the host starts to say something that the listener doesn't appreciate, they'll tune away to something else. Mm-hmm. The idea is you want to keep somebody listening as much as as long as possible because it's highly likely that once they turn over to one other station, they'll forget that they were listening to you. Yeah. And all of a sudden they're listening to, you know, the yacht rock station. Right, right. Well, I have to say, you know, I think WFMT, I think they may have lightly passed this drop the needle test for me because that's an aesthetic that I pre- I happen to like Prokofiev. Even so, what we were just listening to was active enough and uh, pointed enough. Angular is a, a term that I use all the time to keep me listening. A know? romp like that at a quarter of 11? Yeah, I'd say <laughs> that 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 that's a pretty cool choice. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's, that's really great. Again, shout out to uh, WFMT. Congratulations. And we're rooting for y'all down there to see what you're going to do with this radio thing with these uh, young hip hosts. All right. Uh, We have one more accidental this week. Uh, What do you want to give this one, Scott? You brought this one in. I am going to give this a natural. Okay. Nice natural. Give it to us. The headline is, I'm reading from azcentral.com, How the Phoenix Symphony Music Director Champions a Broader Sound by Embracing Diversity. And you and I talk about on the podcast all the time about uh, the idea of an orchestra serving the community that it's in. Mm -hmm. So obviously uh, a orchestra like the Phoenix Symphony, they have, uh, I believe I read in the article, 32% Hispanic population. Yeah. So it it makes sense for them to play music that would appeal to the Latin community. There. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking through here. It, uh, it interviews uh, the music director and conductor Tito Munoz. His hometown is Queens, New York. And he said that that remains his inspiration because it's extremely diverse. English is not the common language. There is no common language. You get on the subway and everybody's speaking. It's uh, speaking everything and it's great. Yeah. So you have uh, some experience with Tito we uh, at PRPD did you want to <laughs> at Sphinx 
Uh, that's right. That's right. I'm sorry. I'm in a different convention mode. Oh, goodness. So Sphinx of 2020. I got I to gotta cut this back on. So this is what happened. We're at Sphinx and uh, Titus, shout out to Titus. He's facilitating a panel. So of course I'm going to show up and it's a conductor panel. So, you know, right off the bat, I'm, I'm feeling a little leery and wary because, you know, I have a history with conductors, but I'm in it. They're talking about programming. It's uh, exciting. And it comes to the question and answer portion. And uh, uh, over the course of the conversation that they were having on this panel, Tito talks about how um, the board of his organization, and I'm not spreading hearsay here, it was a public panel, the board of his organization at that time, this was uh, February 20, or before February 2020, was not comfortable with the orchestra performing Joel Thompson's Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. They thought that was a little bit too much. They weren't willing to get into the uh, so-called politics in that way, X, Y, and Z. So I go up to the mic, you know, being the person I am, at <laughs> the question and answer. And my uh, question, maybe it wasn't so much of a question, I was being a little uh, mf uh was how could I possibly, you know, bring my friends or, or make a case for your organization if your organization won't platform such an important piece like that? I think that was a fair question, sure. you know, and uh, Tito's response was, I don't have an answer for you. Sure. Maybe I put him on the spot. But um, and I don't want to, you know, affix myself to the programming of the Phoenix Symphony, you know, but I can only imagine that a number of those interactions, a number of those circumstances being called to the carpet, hit between the eyes, as uh, as you've said, must go into some change. Maybe that isn't a direct correlation here, but I imagine if a music director heard that sort of rhetoric over and over again, they would be moved to do something. And here we are. We have a music director who's doing something. So he is uh, in his ninth season, starting his ninth season as music director. And uh, in the spring, they played Mexican composer Juan Pablo Contreras' mariachi-inspired piece, Mariachi Lanin. Mm-hmm. They also uh, touched, uh, mentioned the music of uh, Daniel Bernard Romain, DBR, whose classical music has hip-hop influences. He says, we're doing this because it's great music. Here's somebody part of our community, part of our landscape of America, and it fits with the program. It's reflective of values rather than ticking a box. One thing I also want to point out, I'm reading here, it says, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Tito is one of the outstanding conductors of his generation, said Phoenix Symphony Board of Directors co-chair Lon Babby. He brings tremendous enthusiasm and energy to everything that he does, something that I have really grown uh, to appreciate in the uh, nonprofit world, certainly in the arts nonprofit world, is having board members, especially leadership on boards, who are down with the program and ready to to go along. It would be very easy, and maybe there's been some uh, board turnover since I, you know, mm-hmm. since that Sphinx uh, panel. Mm-hmm. But I think it means a lot to have the upper, upper, upper leadership of these organizations ready to do it. I'll, I'll, I'll quote him again here. He says. Uh, he's a master. He's talking about Tito. He's a master of what I would consider the repertoire of the music that I love and that I listen to and that I think attracts many in the audience. Also educated us on where classical music may be headed. So it's it's something to see this. And uh, the answer is easy in a place like Phoenix, Arizona, as to why uh, this approach should be taken. You you said you've uh, been to Phoenix a, a couple times. Does mm-hmm. it does it, uh, you know, feel like 
um, an arts sort of town. If you, when you remember uh, being there, do you think this renewed programming will get the folks you just saw out on the sidewalk and in the restaurants into the concert hall? Unknown. Uh, from the time that I spent down there, there was a lot of golf courses. I saw a lot of golf going on mm -hmm. and classic cars. That's what that's what I remember most vividly. Arts, I don't. I don't even know if when I went down there, I was looking out for that. So yeah, <laughs> I was probably trying to get away from the tundra is all. It, it closes um, out here saying classical, mu uh, classical music is like food for the soul, almost like eating your vegetables. As a music director, you try to judiciously place those pieces in the season so that you're giving the orchestra what they need to keep, uh, to kind of keep in shape and healthy. So it closes out here with Tito saying, you know, you got to sort of place these pieces throughout the season. See, now I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm, I'm really pressing this button this week. We we uh, dropped the needle on WFMT. Would you like to take a look at the programming? Yeah. Of, <laughs> yeah. of the Phoenix Symphony? You know, I again, went over. he said judiciously place these throughout the season. So let's go ahead and take a look. What are your thoughts on what's been published? So, um, in December, they have four performances of Handel's Messiah, and then there's a New Year's Eve concert. So you can imagine, you know, probably a waltzy and celebratory program there. Um, they start off the new year with purely classical. That's uh, got a Beethoven overture and two Mozart pieces. Uh, there's a contemporary music festival. Um, it doesn't give a program. It just says new. A weekend of totally 80s. Uh, fireworks with some Handel and Gabrielli. Um, oh, so multiple concerts with Handel. Hmm. And um, fireworks, that's got Mozart in it too. Um, we get to March and there is a, uh, there's a, one called Turning Points, French Connection, The Princess Bride. Basically what I'm getting at is I'm not seeing a lot. So what is the plan of action now? We have My articles, we have narratives out here that this orchestra is doing so much. We go and look at the programming and we see, at least for this season, we see a sprinkling of different things, but it's largely the same old. I wonder, well, they did mention, you know, the, the program earlier in the season where they had the Beyonce cover, you know, things uh, and probably the DBR piece in there. Yeah, these so, are the cool things we're doing. Sorry, you missed it. Okay, so basically <laughs> what I'm saying is, you know, is this the idea of vegetables being judiciously placed? Maybe so. Listen, I don't want no smoke with the Phoenix Symphony. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, we, we read these articles, we go to the website and look at the programming, and there appears to be a disconnect. So more than a critique, I see this as a, you know, dust in the corners <laughs> sort, of, sort of thing. But, you know, I, yeah. hope, I hope everything goes well over there and you know of course we congratulate and uh celebrate and support tito and uh, especially with the uh, supportive board it sounds like he has so we'll see we'll see what what it does uh, i guess we'll come back uh, a, a year from now and see if uh the the audiences uh, have shifted considerably considerably both at wfmt and down there at the phoenix symphony how about that sounds good to me well they did uh, you did mention that they had something uh scheduled uh, like an 80s night that's that's cool. That's yeah, a vibe. With Tears for Fears and Wang Chung. <laughs> <laughs> I hope their drum set player is ready. Yeah. You know, I, I hope that right hand or left hand on that hi hat, whatever is good. Well, um, it's it, you know, it's it's uh, very cohesive that uh, you mentioned that. I'm gonna bring a little uh 80s music. I think it's 80s, maybe it's even older than that, uh, into the uh, second movement. But to get us there, I'm gonna um share an excerpt from one of those just what I consider a uh 
uh, national anthem <laughs> level piece okay. of the 80s. I hope this is 80s, a tune that I know you know, maybe some of the listeners know as well. Let's take a listen to a little bit of it, and then I'll talk about it on the other side here in the second movement. <laughs> Blondie's Heart of Glass. I quickly looked it up. It said 1978, so it's, it's not 80s. but It's in, grandfathered into the 80s. That's what I was going to say. In the same way that we don't say Baroque um, ended at, at, uh, at uh, 1750 or, or uh, and classical began, you know, mm-hmm. whenever Bach died, I forget all my dates, you know, in, in the same way that we can't just strictly draw the line there. Maybe it's the same for, you know, this so-called popular music. I hear that tune and I think of 80s, even though I can hear the 70s influence, the disco influence in there. And then when retro was cool, you know, the 80s music came back around on certain commercial radio stations. Then you have this whole new generation figuring out who Blondie is. Right. Or even who's the, um, you know, uh, climbing up that hill. I'm forgetting the name of the uh, Kate Bush. uh, Kate Bush. You know, I've had that in my earbuds, you know, this year. You know, everybody's sharing their year wrap ups of uh, Apple Music and Spotify and all those things. (laughs) You know, uh, Kate Bush is, you know, she made my roundup. I think the top 20 or top 25 uh, of of my tracks. So So anyway, 80s is a a thing. So, you know, good for the Phoenix Symphony for dedicating an evening of programming uh, to that. And uh, we're here in the second movement here on Triloquy, where Scott and I are going to take the second ending by sharing with y'all a little bit of the music, one of the tracks we've been spending some time with lately. I'm going to uh, go ahead and go first since we're already in this uh, 80s vibe. So uh, Dell and I were at a new restaurant in uh, downtown Minneapolis a couple weeks ago, an Italian restaurant, and everything uh, that was coming through the uh, speakers was like that uh, that classic black music. I'm talking about uh, Gladys Knight. I'm going to talk about Gladys Knight later in this opus and you know uh, all of those other uh, 50s and 60s and 70s just soul bands. And then this track played and it sounded so familiar to me I could sing every lyric but I didn't really understand why because I felt like I'd never heard this song but (laughs) I figured it out eventually but let me share a little bit of it and then I'll say more children behave that's what they say when we're together and watch how you play they don't understand and so I mean, I sat there and sang every word and I was like, how do I know this song? And of course, I know it. 
as a song by Tiffany. So I was sitting there at the restaurant upset because I'm like, okay, so this woman did not write this song. Of course you not. Know? <laughs> no, well, she didn't even have well, a, anybody you, on her you, team you to write it. You talk about, of course, you know, I don't know that. You know, I'm born in 87. So if Tiffany's, I think we're alone now, made it to me, I'm thinking, oh, she must be okay. the queen of this thing. But we, we have this version of it by Tommy James and the Shondells. That yep. sounds like a black group, the Shondells. But, <laughs> but it's... I don't know. White it's guys from the 60s. A track from 1966 made famous, at least as far as I knew, uh, in, in the 80s, you know, with uh, early 90s with Tiffany. And and here we are, classical music, classical American music, variations on it over the generations. And I got the opportunity to hear the original. I lived with it. I'm still listening to it. You hear nothing wrong with those lyrics. Oh, Lord. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Mommy kissing Santa Claus is tra- is traumatizing. Okay. But I think we're alone now. There doesn't seem to be anyone around. Okay, but no one is- will hear you scream. Oh, no, the scream is not in the in the lyrics. Oh, no, but I'm 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 going deep. <laughs> I have always You don't heard hear this- the problematic nature of the I've always heard this song as Because the first lyric is children behave. That's what they say when we're together. So we're talking about the grownups telling the kids, okay, don't, you know, don't be X, Y, and Z. But as soon as the parents leave, they're going to X, Y, and Z. I think think we're alone now, you know? (laughs) And no one is being lewd. I don't know. There are, go ahead. She didn't, she didn't say, you know, we're in agreement with this. You put your arms around me. We tumbled to the ground. Okay, so he just tackled her. No, he's no. He said you put your arms around me. So <laughs> then you so put she your arms him. around you. No, she says you put your arms around me. Okay, we but, tumbled to the ground, and then you say, "I think who we're is, alone." Who now. is who is she? We're talking about Tommy James. Uh, yeah, Tommy James and the Shondells. See, I think the gender dynamic of the lyrics makes it a little different. You know, he didn't say, I put my arms around you and tumble you to the ground. You know, it's sort Boy, of- Boy, <laughs> we are separating Pepper from fly shit right no, now. No, but, but think about it. You're saying we, you're saying she and attributing, you know, the, uh, the sort of spirit of these lyrics to Tiffany. But as I have discovered, and as we're all listening to, this is a song originally performed in 1966 by men. Does that not add a more lighthearted aspect uh, of it to you? Uh, I don't know. Let's go back and look at uh, Baby It's Cold Outside and see if that if there's any lightheartedness there, shall we? Okay, so the song is problematic, is what you're saying. I think we're alone now. Is I'm, that giving your point? You an, I'm giving you the arm wrestling match that you <laughs> asked for in the first movement. Well, let me, okay, well, so let me ask you this since, you know, you're associating these lyrics, you know, squarely to Tiffany and, and judging them and all that sort of thing. It must have been the case that covers and remixes were easier to get off before we had YouTube and before we had things where you could just search the, the, the song. <laughs> Trying to get away into the night and then you put your arms around me and we tumble to the ground and then you say. No, see, but listen, you have to l- read those lyrics from the perspective of Tommy James. He's trying to leave. He's a Christian. He's got to go to church in the morning. But his girl- I'm reading arms, Tiffany's. <laughs> she sings the same lyrics. I'm saying this is a cover of th- this, this. These lyrics were not by her. <laughs> <laughs> or 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 should should we take the gender aspect out of it? Should we just consider, you know, what's being said here and consider it a little iffy, no matter if it's the girl putting their arms around the guy or vice versa? I think it sounds like the guy, you know, making the story out to be like he was the victim. 
you would you would love <laughs> Scott to be leaving somewhere and some woman puts her arms around you and y'all tumble to the ground. Okay, so don't act like <laughs> I'm not going to go and write a song about it. Anyway, okay. <laughs> That's what I was listening to. So shout out to all of the uh, 80s fans, especially those of you who thought that song was about Tiffany, because I did. She definitely performed it, um, you know, made made it famous for at least for me, for many people. But it's a track that I think through the lens of Tommy James and the Shondells has a lighthearted feel, has that oldies feel that you're talking mm-hmm. about. And it's just a fun uh, uh, date night song to listen to. I mean, are you and I had never even heard of Tommy James and the Shondells. I mean, is that a a group that you know your yeah, parents listened to was yeah, on in the it car? was yeah it was on your you know the the station that your parents listened to on AM mm, oh, oh AM radio okay <laughs> well anyway I like the song you think it's problematic so don't listen to it okay I, hey what does Joe Rogan say I'm just asking questions I'll <laughs> oh, see I don't know what he says so I'm just you're asking oh, questions. so you're over there listening to that huh you have to know what conversations are going on out there man <laughs> Scott is a fan of Joe Rogan wow you heard it here on never Trailer said a fan. <laughs> That's my second ending this week. What music you've been listening to? I am very grateful for the fact that there are more and more recordings becoming available by black artists like Florence Price, but also Margaret Bonds. Yeah. So we can't forget about the work that Dr. Louise Toppin is doing. She's uh, compiled basically a compendium of some of the vocal works. So those can be published and that's going to mean more performances. Yeah. But- I had not had much exposure to anything Margaret wrote past the piano or maybe a duo. Sure. So when Montgomery Variations came across my playlist, I was very pleasantly surprised at the music that came out. In particular, I want to highlight the way that she uses the horns, the horn section in particular, because there's some movements that the horns are so majestic, like uh, announcing some sort of a grand entrance. But then there's like, I I think it's the third movement um, that it's about 10 to 15 minutes into the piece that she uses the horns that it just, I can't describe it any other way than sultry. She makes it sound so sultry. Um, And you, you have a little bit more of the history on the piece itself. Montgomery Variations is a shout out to uh, a march, isn't that right? Yeah. Um, so you, you, you're talking about those horns. Um, I think they're really pronounced at the uh, top of this piece. Let, let's let's hear a little bit of that um, j- just b- b- before we talk about uh, more of this track. So those are some of those horns you're talking about. I bet you you'd be able to write a break about how the music makes you feel. Yeah, I want to. I want to shout out uh, Dr. Tammy Carnodal. Um, I, I need to uh, have her uh, on Triloquy, but uh, she's a, a black woman, a musicologist, who put this piece of music on my radar uh, a couple of years ago, maybe even during uh, 2020. Uh, the The Gateways Music Festival uh, was having a, a virtual conference, and uh, she uh, uh, did a presentation uh, on. Uh, it wasn't a panel, but it was more of a, a presentation on Margaret Bonds as a composer, mm-hmm. and this uh, piece of music came 
came out. This presentation happened before this recording uh, by the Minnesota Orchestra existed. But basically what she was sharing was that we tend to separate uh, black composers, especially black women composers from their time when it comes to activism and the things that were happening. But uh, those folks were in fact involved. So um, from what I understand, this piece of music was inspired by the songs and the spirituals and the hollers uh, that were being shared and performed during the protests uh, back in the uh, 60s. Uh, specifically in Montgomery, Alabama, we have the bus boycotts and all of the, right. the other things that were going on. So the people were activated. They were on the streets and they were using music just as black people have for generations to keep them moving forward. So Margaret Bonds, inspired by um, that bit of history and those experiences, wrote this uh, suite of uh, orchestral arrangements and transcriptions of those songs it is called Montgomery Variations. Really, really incredible history and uh, an incredible piece of music to have professional, excuse me, professionally recorded at this point. So um, I'd like for you to go ahead and go up to the fifth movement, though, because that's the part where you can feel the moisture, you can feel the humidity. It's called One Sunday in the South. of music like this I think is really important to have those really beautiful very pastoral moments you know just to make the point that it's not always about oppression and hurt and harm when it comes to black folks especially black activists we even find chances for beauty that that's what I hear in in that movement and then in the trumpet uh in, in the background maybe even off stage trumpet you heard sort of a, a major key version of that original spiritual I want Jesus to walk with me for folks who don't uh, know that melody uh one of the things that I think about I know we've talked about it here when it comes to new recordings and newly discovered music there isn't the thousands of encyclopedia and Wikipedia articles to read to, you know, create a narrative around this music. I wonder what uh, your approach was. You saw this on your playlist. How did you uh, contextualize this and offer it to your audience? This was a piece that I had never heard before, and it was also part of what we call the Euro classic. So there's a, there's a pre-written little intro, you go right into the music and then it's gone into the ether. It can be played one time. Oh, you read those things? Oh, okay. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, there was no context for me to give. Oh, I see. Uh, I got loads and loads of emails about it and I'm like, well, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to point you to the, the YouTube version because there isn't one that you can buy. Yeah. So, but this is the point that I'm talking about. The, The fact that these relics are showing up in places that you're not expecting and maybe even where you thought they shouldn't even be. Yeah. And what else is out there? What what else is has been lost or or mishandled 
and and we don't even ha- have a, a manuscript to do a recording of it or a revival of it. I, I mean, people forget that the Florence Price symphonies 20 years ago, we didn't even have them. Right. Like we didn't even know they existed. So who's to know what, you know, still has yet to be uh, discovered, recovered, or if, if it's out there to be recorded for us to uh, experience. Like I said, it was two years ago, maybe even less than two years ago when I first learned about this piece, thanks to Dr. Tammy Carnodal, and there was not a professional recording of the piece for me to hear. I just yeah. had to imagine what this could have sounded like. And now we have you know, our hometown band uh, creating something to share this with the world and now even more recordings because you said this was uh, Euro Classics that you shared it on your radio show. So that means orchestras in Europe are, are playing the thing now. It's it's really huge. You know, something that um, I've been thinking about lately, I had a conversation uh, with someone over at the Minnesota Orchestra today and uh, what I told her was that healing has been a part of my ability to engage orchestras and to engage orchestral music. You know, we we go through so much trauma, you know, through music school and the profession of having to center this one thing in this one part of the world and composers who look one certain way and had a certain experience that you just want to throw the whole thing away. But it's it's hard to deny the the impact and the change that we're seeing with new recordings and just uh, honest dialogue and engagement of uh, contemporary culture and mm-hmm. the times. It's huge. I love this piece. Margaret Bonds' Montgomery Variations is uh, one of my new favorites. So I'm, I'm glad that it's uh, getting some uh, radio airplay and that you're able to uh, talk about it and experience well, it as well. at least that one time, we're wait, still waiting on a release for it. Do you, do, do you have any idea if... Minnesota Orchestra is going to release it? Maybe. I'm I'm, I'm sure it could be. Um, But, you know, more than, you know, that it being monetized and capitalized in in that way, there is access to it. I'll I'll have a, I'll put a link uh, to the Minnesota Orchestra performance in the, uh, in the description of this. Definitely go take a listen and, you know, give this thing the views and the clicks that it needs. So people see that there's real interest, a real thirst, a real hunger for more of this. You, you won't be disappointed. I mean, this is a piece that turned my head to the speakers numerous times. Like, whoa, what is she doing? Uh, you're going to love it. Montgomery Variations by Margaret Bonds. Ashe. All right. Well, that's our second movement. We're getting into our third movement. And this week, I um, have the pleasure of sharing with you my conversation with Aaron Siegel. He's one of the artistic directors uh, at an organization called Experiments in Opera. I'm going to read a little bit uh, here from their media kit. It says, Experiments in Opera hopes that when people watch this on TV, there will be a switch that flips and people say, OMG, This is an opera. I'm not afraid of this. It isn't intimidating. And it's great. Uh, They have a a TV series, an opera TV series that's been running uh, called Everything for Dawn. It's uh, one of their 2022 projects. I'll have that uh, linked uh, in the uh, description. It's on a a website, uh, allarts.org, I I believe. Um, Yes, allarts.org. Sometimes I get my um, orgs and and comms uh, mixed up. Um, So I talk with Aaron about um, this approach, this renewed approach to opera, what new opera means for new audiences, um, and lots more. Really honored to um, have Aaron Siegel uh, on the Triloquy podcast this week. And 
I'm really excited to learn about, you know, this new approach to opera, especially uh, Everything for Dawn. So to get us into the conversation, we're going to listen to an excerpt from Everything for Dawn. This is uh, a part of the opera, the TV opera called A Riot Girl at a Rave, music and libretto here by Jason uh, Caddy, um, featuring Britt Hewitt here um, as Dawn singing these vocals. So here's a little bit of this, an excerpt from Everything for Dawn. And uh, here's my conversation with the one and only Aaron Siegel from Experiments in Opera. Hope y'all enjoy. First thing to say about myself is that I am definitely not an opera insider in the way that um, a lot of people might consider themselves. I came to opera through very unconventional spaces, which I'll talk a little bit about, I think, later in this conversation. But um, so I'm, I think that I've always come to I've always understood opera as um, connected to theater, connected to the way that we experience film um, in our culture, um, the way that we think about storytelling. Uh, and the meaning that we have um, going to the theater, sitting with a bunch of other people and taking in a story, the experience both visually and orally, um, sonically, like all the sort of uh, multi-sensory experience of opera. So I come to it through that place, um, which is, uh, and I come to it through contemporary music, you know, new music, experimental music. Um, that's my background and training. Um, I think a lot about, uh, you know, what are we, what are we looking, what are we looking for when we go to see opera? Um, and so, I, but, but not necessarily thinking about the conventions, um, and the ways in which, you know, history and all the repertoire, um, has, uh, told a certain story about opera. So, um, I love traditional opera, 19th century opera. I love 20th century opera. Um, I don't think it's sacred. And I don't really, um, I don't, I don't see it as that part of the art form as as alive as the contemporary new music and um, the new operas that are being generated. So, just from a general philosophical standpoint, that's where I'm at. Um, I definitely feel like audiences, when they come to the theater, they're expecting um, uh, when they go to see, you know, grand opera. I do think it's almost like a, a niche novel experience. Like they're getting dressed up and they get to go and they get to see Mozart or they get to see Wagner or they get to mm -hmm. see Verdi. And they're having an experience akin to going to see the Mona Lisa at the Louvre. Um, I should be doing this. This is my cultural, um, this would make me, you know, culturally literate in a certain way. Um, and that's all great. Like, I think we should all see that work. But it's a very different experience than going to an opera that's new or one that's challenging or one that um, really speaks to themes or ideas uh, that are more prevalent to our culture today. Um, and, you know, I think the challenge with a lot of those old operas 
and the way that most sort of traditional companies are addressing challenges of audience has to do with dressing up dressing up a pig, you know? <laughs> um, they're trying to take something that's 200 years old and make it relevant. Um, and that's the, you know, I don't begrudge them that. That's the story of repertory theater. We're doing that with Shakespeare, you know? That's, um, you know, that's what we do in our culture and it's really informative. But it's not, um, it's not gonna, that's not gonna by itself continue to perpetuate itself. It's gonna start to calcify, it already has. And I think that, um, uh, we need to develop ways to engage with those audiences so that we really feel like they're understanding that this is a live, a live art form. This is a living art form that um, artists are engaging with, that are taking seriously and are experimenting with. Yeah. Um, and to learn how to accept that that's going to sound different, that that's going to look different, that's going to feel different. And um, that's really where I come to the, the notion of opera and opera audiences at. Yeah, it's it seems like there's a, a weird dichotomy of challenges here because we talk about trying to engage new people through new stories and new approaches. At the same time, every, I don't know, uh, development officer or artistic director will tell you that Carmen will sell out if an opera company really yeah. needs some money going to some of the more popular uh, titles in in the field will will get people there. So I wonder what are your thoughts on engaging, you know, that dual issue. The the classics will sell, but the classics will sell only to those who have already been engaged by the by the art form. I, well, so I think that's a really good question and I I come to that through a couple different lenses. Um one of the jobs that I have is uh, working at Carnegie Hall, um, which is, uh, I work in the education department there, um, which is a fantastic place, incredible people and thinkers um, who are engaged in supporting music education across the world, really, in really deep investing ways. And I am also quite critical of the way in which Beethoven will sell out the house. Um, and and it's the same story that, that happens um, with Carmen and Bizet and um, with Bohem and all of that stuff, where you have these flagship pieces that that everyone's convinced um, are the only things that will sell out the house. And I will tell you that from my experience, that part of the problem is, yes, that there is a mentality that, um, you know, that those are the only things that will work. And, you know, that's sort of borne out in reality. But there is also this other side of it, which is that if... Um, if the people who are working at these big opera houses and big concert halls um, invested as heavily themselves, both as listeners, thinkers, um, uh, in, in understanding what the new music and what the new opera is and how it's being created, and if they put the same resources of marketing and audience development and ticket sales and social media and they really did as good of a job um, as they possibly could, as, as good of a job as MTV does or as any of these other um, cultural uh, media organizations that that's selling, you know, selling new things to Americans and to people around the world and to young people. If they did even a fraction of that, then it wouldn't be a problem. Um, so that the material itself and the repertoire is is part of the problem, but it's also um, a real uh, a real problem that the people who are supporting the work don't know it and are biased against it. Um, and I think that's a you know talking about DEI, um, 
you know, we'll get to that a little bit more, but I think that there's something real about the way in which people's aesthetic understandings of new work really gets in the way of their embracing it. And they, they just write it off right away. Um, they just say, no, this isn't going to work. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you that it's mostly young people, it's composers of color, it's female composers, it's people who are pushing back against um, the, the hegemony, um, you know, the, the heteronorm, you know, norm around, uh, you know, art makers and creators. Um, and so there's a, it's a tricky thing, but I really feel like um, there's, there's, we just haven't actually seen what it looks like to have the resources um, and the smart uh, planning behind new work um, that we what we see regularly around the support of repertoire. Yeah, you mentioned education, and one of my qualms with the field is that so much of what we do is rooted in an audience member's need to learn something or or to know something to in, engage what we're doing. I feel like you know education is one thing, but entertainment is another thing. I wonder if you can speak to that issue. Do we need to move away from treating opera and, and Western classical music generally as a point of learning? How can, how can we turn it into something different, you know, <laughs> something that doesn't require yeah, no, I, us feeling like we're in a classroom or, or needing to remember something? Yeah, I mean, there's this, there's this big conversation in the educational field around eating, eating your vegetables, right? That's mm-hmm. always a big thing. Right. How much do you have to get your kid to eat their vegetables? Um, and how much is it okay just to give them a bowl of, you know, honey nut Cheerios and call it a day? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, as a parent, I can, I can speak to that and, you know, just sort of the, the, the real world experience of, um, you know, adults, people who have more knowledge and information um, wanting to help young people grow. Um, I think that's there's a there's a conversation that is really meaningful about that. And I definitely feel like it is our responsibility as adults, especially when when it comes to kids um, and, and is our, it is our responsibility as cultural institutions and as cultural makers um, to 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 make our work accessible to um, to younger people as learners. Now, um, when we talk about adults, um, I think that the conversation is much uh, it's much different. Mm-hmm. Um, most adults would say that they don't know about something, that they don't, that they feel intimidated by it, that they're turned off by it, that they're scared by it. Um, that's about fear. Um, that's about the ways in which as people and human beings, we're told at a certain point in our lives that if something is unfamiliar to us, that we should be afraid of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, that I think is not about educating. That's actually about continuing to put things in front of people's faces to give them the exposure that they need to and not compromising at all about the entertainment or um, rigor or, um, you know, just the quality of, of the work that's being generated. Um, so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a different conversation depending upon how old the audience members are. Um, but I don't think that it's our, it's our responsibility as artists to, um, you know, to spoon feed people. I think that our responsibility is to challenge them um, and and then to talk to them about it. I think one of the things that I've found really interesting, and I know we'll get to more about everything for Don, but this is a project that we've been able to share on a national level. And so I'm getting calls and emails from friends and family members and um, audiences who don't live in the New York area and who don't normally come to our live shows. And so they're able to see the real deal art making on their television screens 
And they're calling me and they're saying, I don't know what to do with this. Can you help me? Mm-hmm. And that is awesome. That is so awesome as a maker and as a producer to be in conversation um, with people when they really want to know, how can I engage with this more? Like, what is it? What should I be listening for? Like, where are my biases coming up? How am I, um, how am I shutting myself down just by the nature of, um, you know, the, the homogeneity of our cultural world? Um, how can we, um, how can I really like, you know, get this? And so that's really, that's exciting um, to engage in. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the interesting things I find about the opera field is that folks who work in it specifically work toward uh, shifting it and and changing it. Um, not all of us, I'll say, not all of us come from opera. You know, I'm not an opera singer. You're not an opera singer, not trained as one anyway, but here you are. Uh, I wonder if you can speak to your background and how it led to your co-founding uh, experiments in opera. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I was trained as a percussionist. Um, I studied in, I lived outside Washington, D.C., and I studied with uh, one of the percussionists from the Washington National Opera, um, from a wonderful woman named Nora Davenport. And um, I guess my first exposure to opera was through her, although I didn't, I don't think I ever saw any of her performances. Um, but she would tell me, you know, she's going to play in the pit of Turandot or, um, you know, any of the operas that were going on at the Washington National Opera. Um, it wasn't really until, um, when I got to college and started to engage with um, a lot of the contemporary music at college, um, and I started to do a lot more composing, um, and then also in graduate school. Um, and I came to it through what I would say is like, um, you know, John Cage, Flexus, um, performance art um, happenings, um, this idea that, um, and, and really also through like ballet and the history of, you know, um, artists engaging and collaborating with dancers and musicians in France and Diaghilev and all of these like historical moments where you have these confluence of great artistic minds. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's where I always came to it from. And then when I was in graduate school at Wesleyan, um, I studied there with Anthony Braxton, um, who is a mentor and a wonderful um, influence of mine. Um, Someone who also exemplifies coming from a performance background, coming from an improvisatory background. I was a jazz musician. And so coming from, a place where, you know, you're playing improvisatory music, you're playing Black American music, you're also playing classical music, and I'm playing um, in bands and jazz bands and really understanding all of what it means to make American music um, in Mm -hmm. some ways. And that also includes, you know, the American experimental tradition. So you have John Cage and, um, you know, Nanjun Pike, um, and, you know, you start to think about video artists and performance artists and Laurie Anderson and everyone suddenly becomes in this soup. Um, and, and so for me, opera really comes out of that space and wanting my art to be more than just musicians all dressed in black, standing up, sitting on a stage, um, playing my music, um, which, you know, not to poo poo on that. I love that too. Um, but I just wanted more, I'm a visual person. I wanted to see things. I wanted to see costumes and sets and lights and really see the power of that. And I think, Anthony Braxton is a really good, you know, sort of person because he he's incredibly ambitious as a thinker um, of around new music, um, and he has this huge opera project called Trillium, which is twelve full length operas. Um, you know, I, I think he's written about ten of them now, or maybe eleven of them. I'm not exactly sure where he's at with them, but um, hugely ambitious and always encouraging me and all of my colleagues to 
engage with opera, um, to listen to, to the history, um, to take it seriously, and then to, to make your own, you know? I mean, he was someone who said, He's, there's no there's no walls to these things. You don't have to wait for someone to give you a capstone career project and make to produce your opera. Go out and produce your opera. Um, and of course, you know he also came out of the AACM in Chicago mm-hmm. and out of the, a lot of collective um, artists, collectives and stuff that were developing um, in the later part of the 20th century. So I was heavily influenced by that, by the New York School of Composers, John Cage, Morton Feldman, Earl Brown, Christian Wolf, and then you know people like. Bang on a Can, um, Black Artist Group, um, all the like, all the groups that were really self-organizing. And so my myself and Matthew Welch and Jason Katie, who really both are also Wesleyan alums, um, we all came out of that same space. And um, you know, it wasn't long before um we said, you know, let's let's pool our resources, let's figure out how to to create some some space for our work to be generated, um, but also to support the larger community of composers who were looking to get into writing opera um, when, you know, they wouldn't have those opportunities um, normally. So what are, how, who are those people and how can we support them and build community around them? And that's really where Experiments in Opera came from. Yeah, because you could see those costumes and lights that you wanted to see in many opera spaces. So it sounds like the focus on um, new music and, and living composers is really what uh, makes uh, the positionality of Experiments in Opera unique if i'm if i'm understanding correctly yeah i mean absolutely we we don't do any repertoire opera a repertory opera we, we've never produced work that's not an, a premiere um that and we've done a couple of of our premieres a couple of times you know like given the multiple performances so i guess those don't really count as premieres but the the you know we've commissioned over 85 new operatic works in the last 10 years and um we really pride ourselves on just just every year asking who, how can we challenge composers to write something together so that by themselves in a new format and a new scale um, and really thinking about opera um, as this like, you know, this play thing, you know, like how yeah. are we going to with it today? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, among, among the latest is everything for Dawn, which is a, you know, stream friendly, TV friendly approach to opera. One of the things that I've noticed about it, one of the first questions that came to mind when I learned about this was uh, about how many people there are involved. If you have a, a 10 part, uh, TV series for, let's say, Netflix, you know, you have your, you know, your writers, you have your folks who have conceived the the story arc and those sorts of things. But with everything for Don, um, every episode has, in essence, a different team or, you know, different writers. I, I wonder if you can speak to that. Why, why so many cooks in the kitchen, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um so I think that the origins of this project really came from some early experiments that we did as a company with multiple authors as uh, creating something together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a way for us to, one, get get a full-length opera out into the world much more quickly. Because if you have one composer and one librettist working on things, you know, they can only work so fast. And, you know, these things take time and lots of iterations. So... What we decided to do um, a couple in about 2015 is that Jason and Matt and I created a piece together called Sisyphus, um, which was based on the myth of Sisyphus. And we created the libretto ourselves. And um, each of us wrote about um, 25 minutes of music. We all told different parts of the story and it was overlapping and it was very kind of postmodern um, 
you know, each of us was sort of taking our own angles on the story. But over the course of the evening, it told a single story and it was all directed by the same director and the same actors and the same ensemble. So there was a continuity around that. And we've developed that process, you know, over the over the years. And um, in 2018, 2019, we created a, a piece called Every, um, Chunky and Heat, which was written by us, the same um, librettist, A.M. Holmes. And then we invited um, five composers to write the scenes of that. So we're getting closer to that same model. Um, so with this 10th anniversary coming up, um, we're, we're experiencing right now, we knew that we wanted to do something that was like very 10 oriented. <laughs> mm. So we came up with this idea to do a 10 part um, opera. Um, we, we knew that we were going to commission a composer to write each of the episodes. And, um, uh, but we, we didn't know how we were going to create the libretto. We got a grant from Opera America, um, an innovation grant. They were at some point um, really supporting like these new steps, these new ideas. Um, that program no longer exists, unfortunately. But um, you know, at the time, it was a real lifeline for us because it was institutional support for something that um, felt like really risky in a lot of ways. Um, and the pitch that we had was, you know, let's get six to seven librettists involved. Um, and have them sit in a room the way that they would at a writer's room and hammer out you know, who the characters are, what the story arc is, what each episode is gonna cover. Um, and we did that. So Kamala Shankaram, um, who's uh, our, one of our artistic directors, I know you've spoken to her in the past, um, Jason, Katie and I um, uh, came together and we were the quote unquote showrunners of the piece as the main producers of from Experiments and Opera. And then we had five additional writers in the writer's room. These are playwrights. Um, some of them have written some television shows, um, some musicals. I think one of them had written an opera, but the other, but no one else had written an opera besides that. And, um, you know, in addition to bringing in those multiple voices and really feeling the liveliness and the aliveness of our community, um, it was also a way for us to bring in voices that were not normally having opportunities to share their stories and their ideas in the space of opera. So it was definitely a, a, a program that was focused on DEI in the sense that we were going to have many more seats at the table. Mm. And as a result, we were going to be able to bring in a lot more different voices, um, people who are new to opera, um, voices, uh, writers of color, composers of color, um, different gender identifying um, artists. And so we knew that we were going to be able to bring a lot more people to the table. Um, and we've always felt really strongly um, from a philosophical standpoint that um, it's the community working with each other that's the most powerful aspect of the work that we do. Um, and that we, that supporting all these artists from different backgrounds and different ethnicities and social classes and such that it wasn't just about giving them opportunities necessarily just to do their own show, but what were those opportunities looking like and feeling like and sounding like within the context of this larger collaboration that's happening amongst the community. So that was the, that was the idea. And that was the, you know, how we were able to really bring all of those people together. The writers um, in the writer's room worked for about um, 10 months and, you know, each of them wrote a libretto or so. I think everyone wrote kind of two librettos, um, and then we handed those librettos off to the composers and each of the 10 composers went ahead and composed their music. Now, just to correct something that you said earlier, um, the director 
And the performers and the ensemble are all the same throughout all 10 episodes. I see. So we have found that even amongst something that's as varied as a different composer for each episode, there's something happens in the human brain. And I haven't talked to a neurologist about this, but I would love to at some point. When you're sitting in a room and you see the same people make different music, um, you accept a certain amount of difference and change because there's the continuity of human personhood in front of you. And I don't know what that's all about. Um, I'm sure that there's a fascinating study there to be done. Um, but I, I think that there's, there's this continuity that happens psychologically where it's really easy to believe it because the general sounds of the ensemble are the same. The singer's sounds are the same. It's all recorded in the same studio with the same engineer. The same director is telling the story over the course of the time. So you almost don't even notice the fact that you're listening to 10 different composers' musics. I see. I see. That's very fascinating. I, I want to underscore something that you said, you know, specifically about um, Opera America's support of this uh, process. Uh, you know, the grant that you received from them. I can see a world where you would receive that same amount of money from a Hulu or a or a Disney Plus or or something. So, you know, the money itself aside, uh, was this sort of collaboration um, a stamp of approval, or or is there significance to Opera America's support of this project uh, beyond you know the, the the financial possibilities that it created? Yeah. Well, I think it's a really good question. Um, I know you have, are interacting with and work for a service organization um, uh, and, and are in that space. Um, uh, and, and so I and I am as well, you know, in a certain sense, you know, I'm very aware of the ecosystem that we all live in, um, where organizations and individuals and service organizations are all trying to help each other out. Um, I, you know, I personally have a, a little bit of a fraught relationship with Opera America, and I and I and I I don't um, want to make too much of it because you know I do really value that community, but I also think that that um, that those service organizations in general um, they're very hard to they're very slow to change, mm. um, and I think part of the problem with that is that they emerge out of the need to sustain and to conserve what has already been created. Um, so when you think, when you look back at the creation of Opera America, of the creation of, um, you know, the, um, this League of Symphony, American League of Symphony Orchestras, mm -hmm. what you see is a lot of establishment people saying, let's do something, let's, let's get this organization together that will support all of our needs. And then once you have that together, then that organization feels like those big members, um, in the case of Opera America, all of the major houses, Santa Fe, LA, Chicago, Cincinnati, you know, New York, Boston, those become the major constituencies of that organization and the ones who have the biggest sway in terms of what's, what's happening. Um, and probably the people at Upper America might contest that. Um, but I will tell you that on the, on the ground that there is a reality to being a small company that's making work that, that kind of butts up against that orthodoxy um, that, you know, there's just not as many opportunities and there's not as much support and there's not as much platform to share those ideas. And that's just yeah. the way it is. 
Yeah. And I'm going to pull on that, uh, pull on a thread. You know, you use the word ground. One thing that I uh, noticed in the press release of everything for Don is uh, that it's grounded in the reality of our world. I think, you know, we do a lot of almost bending over backwards to make 200 year old pieces of music relevant through different uh, stagings or even, you know, the language that. Uh, we use. But at the end of the day, it it is that just an attempt to make it relevant. I, I wonder if you can speak to the subject matter of everything for Don and how it's actually doing what so many yeah. want to do, really grounding the content in our own realities. Yeah, I think that's what's actually quite disorienting about it. Um, you know, uh, we, 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 we really care a lot about original stories at Experiments in Opera. Um, Jason Cady, who um, is one of the artistic directors and is really the chief driver of a lot of the lore stories and librettos and dramaturgy in our kind of artistic cohort, um, you know, really feels strongly that um, those original stories, whether they're grounded um, in genre or um, certain, you know, tropes of storytelling, um, but that those original stories are the ones that are most interesting and that we really want to put forward. So we don't do a lot of, um, you know, biopic, you know, operas that are very popular. We don't do a lot of adaptations of film works or, you know, novel length works. Um, we do some, you know, some of that stuff, but it's not really the priority. Um, and I think with everything for Dawn, um, you know, it, it really, the, the idea of it came out of, um, you know, our conversations and, and really an idea that I had ultimately, though I, it's not important to me that I take credit for that, um, of telling the story that would be really relevant to our organization. Mm. Um, and so we want to talk about artists. We want to talk about an artist um, and how he interacts with his family and his community and the art world. And so we started to sort of deal with that and we put it in the context of the 1990s, which was important to us because um, it's kind of pre-internet, you know, it's pre-9-11. Um, there's a, you know, it's sort of, there's a certain political and cultural moment in our world. Um, it's a little bit of an age of innocence looking back on it now. Um, although at the time, you know, there was a lot of crazy shit that was happening. <laughs> um, but it was, it felt, it feels like from this vantage point, like a lot more of an innocent time. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was important to us to think about that. It was also really important for us to not have it take place in New York. So that most, most of the opera takes place in Detroit. Um, and the people in it are middle-class workers. When um, Gloria, the mother, is, works at the post office, um, Mac, the father, worked on the assembly line at the Buick factory. Um, you know, these are people who have normal lives, and uh, Mac is a Vietnam vet and is suffering some PTSD. Um, I think those were the people who I grew up with. Those are the people who Jason grew up with. Um, you know, other members of our writer's room informed the character of those people, those characters as they were being developed, how they talked, um, uh, what they were interested in, what the cultural references they were making. And so mm -hmm. we really just, you know, we reveled in that the way that um, you, when you watch Stranger Things, you can revel in the 1980s. Right. Um, and the, the, you know, the level of detail that those creators made um, in order to support that particular vision. Um, so it feels, that's how it feels grounded in our reality. It's relevant in the sense that, you know, we're making re references to Oklahoma City and the Clintons and, um, 
you know, uh, Bikini Kill and Girl and, and, and the music of the day. And that's all stuff that was just, if you lived through the 90s, um, that's your world. That's the world that we lived in. Yeah. Um, and so that feels really particularly gratifying um, to make work that has that kind of historical perspective. Um, and that, you know, this as a result can just feel so much closer and so much more accessible to us. Yep, and I think there's a, a possibility, a potential for it to even reach some of the younger folks. I did a, a site visit at uh, Manus at the New School uh, last week, and from my perspective, all the kids I saw walking around were dressed like the '90s. If if I have an idea of what '90s apparel is, I saw yeah. it, you know, ev- everywhere. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so maybe there's even that uh, connectivity. I, I wonder what um, the response has been to this so far. Generally well, speaking. Um, yeah, I mean, coming back to something you said earlier, which I wanted to just loop around around, you asked about whether or not the sort of imprimatur of Opera America was helpful and, sure. you know, whether like, you know, Netflix or Hulu. So this is a project that we, um, you know, that we got some funding from Opera America on. But further down the line, we entered into a partnership with All Arts, which is a subsidiary of WNET, which is the public television station in New York City. And so I would say that actually the support of that organization um, has turned out to be much more important to the, to the production. And I'll tell you why is because it, um, they're a television station. They have a streaming platform um, that it's a national platform. They have the knowledge about marketing um, television programs. And so um, we didn't have to create our own platform. Um, we licensed the material to a television station so that they could share it. That is a different business model than I would have ever expected we would have been involved in, Mm. um, in terms of thinking about creating content as an opera company. Um, But when you think about connecting with audiences, finding yourself in a different place, repositioning opera um, from a medium standpoint, it's exactly those kinds of relationships that are going to be the most important moving forward. Um, Countless opera companies have their own platforms now most of them will not survive five years mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because it's really hard. It's really hard to like, you know, feed the beasts, right. Yeah, you know, you have yeah. to like keep on creating content. Um, so being in a place where, you know, established television makers and distributors are sharing this work on a national platform, um, sharing it with affiliates across the country, just means that the audience for this, you know, is is going from a, a regular one of our shows, which might be 500 to 700. Suddenly, within a couple of weeks, is 5,000 to 7,000. Um, so, you know, what is that? A hundredfold mm-hmm. um, in terms of, uh, you know, the audience, except, you know, setting eyes on it. Um, now, I'm sure that not everyone's going to watch the whole thing, and that's fine. But the numbers just become so much more interesting and favorable um, and frankly, um, you know, that's where you do get the people being like, oh, wow, I didn't know that this is opera. This yeah. would be opera. Oh, I could get with this. Um, I don't want to go to the theater. I don't want to dress up and I don't want to hear something sung in Italian, but I could watch this at home on my couch and with the subtitles and, you know, and, and, and enjoy it and want to find out what happens next and watch all 10 episodes. Um, so I, you just have a different a different experience like it's a different uh, i don't want to use do be too like highfalutin but there's this term that i really love uh phenomenology which is just like hmm. your experience of the world around you how you take in and how you uh, experience space and sound and i think that there's something really powerful about 
the spaces in which we are seeing art and hearing it and whether it's made for it. You know, I think um, that's what's exciting about podcasts, for instance, is that you get this high quality audio right in your ears the way that you do when you listen to public radio or when you listen to, you know, professionally produced audio recordings. Right. It's just right there. And, and so you, you just, you have it in that, you're consuming it in the same way that you're used to consuming things. And so I think having, you know, something show up on their TV is, audiences are finding it really fascinating, um, uh, shocking, <laughs> I, I dare say. Sure. Um, just to be situated in that context in that way. So I'll I'll add this into you know the question of the response. I did see on your uh, Facebook page that there was an interesting conversation happening regarding uh, the aesthetic of opera singing, the the the, yeah. the operatic technique. You know, word a word shrill was what uh, was used in in this dialogue. Um, I wonder if you can speak to that conversation. You know, is it important? for uh, new approaches to opera to hang on to that specific singing technique that, you know, may be inaccessible to many people, even if it is in English? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a really good question. And, and that conversation on the Facebook, um, you know, it was really, really interesting. Um, a, a wide swath of people chiming in, um, you know, some singers, some composers, some um, TV people, and then some just, you know, some watchers and stuff. So really nice to have a healthy, lively conversation on social media that doesn't devolve into some kind of, you know, argument. But I think the main point that I come out with is, you know, when, when we talk about what's keeping people from understanding and engaging with opera, I think a lot of times it is the operatic voice. Hmm. Um, you don't, I mean, just to, just to make the point, you know, people will go and see um, an Oscar Hammerstein, um, you know, musical on Broadway um, and even that is like, you know, that's like, that's not a, a contemporary um, musical, but it still has a lot of the same, um, you know, tropes and trappings of contemporary music theater. Mm -hmm. um, but the vocal technique and the vocal, the singing is just so different, right? It's a chest voice. The singers are trained differently. The diction is much easier to make out. It doesn't, it's in a different register, generally speaking. Um and so it just does, does things differently to our ears and to our eardrums and to the way that we're processing sound and how we feel about it. So I think that there's a major, that's a major hurdle. And there are a lot of the people and, and on that, you know, Facebook post, they were there saying, you know, this kind of operatic singing with, you know, the full head voice that's trained in that way um, is no longer relevant in our culture. Mm -hmm. um, it was made in a certain time to project to the back of a 19th century opera house, and it doesn't have any relevance in our world today. Um, I thought that was a really interesting comment by someone who said, well, the forte piano was created in order to reach the back of the concert hall. Does that mean that that's not relevant anymore? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think that that, you know, the arguments that people are making about what that voice means and how it situates itself, you know, psychologically within our world can kind of go both ways. And I don't necessarily feel one way or the other about it. I do think that um, uh, I feel strongly that opera can be made with any kind of vocal technique. Um, I think that the main difference between opera and music theater really has to do with um, the, th the ways in which you are listening and uh, absorbing the histories of those music. Um, and also having to do with 
the hierarchy of musical, um, uh, instrumental and orchestral writing in relationship to the stage action and dramaturgy. And then mm -hmm. also about the, um, you know, through song, like uh, recitative uh, quality of opera, which I think is much different than uh, when you go to see musical theater and you have a lot of spoken text um, go going throughout. Um, so I think that opera can happen with any vocal type. And I think that, that we as a company and as a culture should accept that that is the case and that there is just not one way to do it. However, I think with everything for Dawn and in generally with experiments in opera, we, we like to work with that voice because there's something expressive and musical about it. Um, it also allows us to produce um, using a different kind of model. Um, oftentimes, I will say that people, um, singers who have done the training um, around the opera voice are coming to these productions with the different skill sets mm -hmm. um, around reading, around rehearsal, um, around being able to memorize things and to get off book, et cetera, and different kinds of rehearsal processes of creation. And so for us, those, um, those processes are more aligned with our production process as a company. Um, and so I think that's, that's more of the rationale for using that. In addition to the fact that we just like the sound of it. Um, it's an aesthetic decision. Um, you know, it's not going to be for everyone. We understand that. But there's a really interesting point also, and I know that I'm talking too long about this, but this is so fascinating <laughs> to me. Um, and I could tell that it's important to you as well. Um, there are a lot of biases about it too. Um, and specifically gendered biases around the sound of um, female voices, right. um, the sound right. of male voices, right. our tolerance for different kinds of emotional outputs according to those voices. And so, um, you know, when people respond really you know, dramatically to a quote unquote shrill female voice in the soprano tessitura, you have to wonder what is it that we are struggling with in terms of female representation on stage and, and their musical representation? Why is it hard for us to, to acknowledge um, and to hear women's voices um, without being biased towards them or dipping into stereotypes about um, hysteria or the ways in which women are um, more generally in our culture. And so there's a real kind of dialogue around that, which I think is very important and is, um, you know, I'm certainly not necessarily the best person to articulate what that means, but I do feel really sensitive to that and, and really sensitive to my colleagues who, um, who, and who want to support the, you know, thinking about gender identities on stage in different ways and not necessarily just associating them specifically with a certain tessitura or vocal range. So despite the nuanced dialogues that you engage uh, around that subject and as it uh, relates to everything from Don and the broader work of experiments in opera, there will be people who will allege that this is a disrespect to opera. I, I wonder what your response is to that idea. Good. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think you know, that's the short answer. Yeah. That's the short answer. I think that is what art does. That is what our responsibility as artists is. Um, is I'm not, a, we're not afraid about pissing people off or making them feel uncomfortable. That's on them. Um, you know, uh, I don't think this is disrespectful. 
um, of, of the work. If you think about all the people who have been involved in this, all of the, the work in terms of the quality of the productions that we've put in, this is not something that's, you know, brushed off and put together hastily um, and then expected to sort of sit on the same level as a great masterwork. No, this is something that this community worked hard on, collaborated on over four years and are putting forward in a way that we feel is of the highest quality that we can imagine given the amount of resources that we had to, to spend. So there's a tremendous amount of care that's being put in this. And if you're not hearing that, and if you think it's a bit disrespectful in some way, then it's likely that that, that person has to take a look at what their expectations are and the, you know, the aesthetic biases that they're bringing to bear and the ways in which they are locked into a certain way of seeing and hearing the world that um, is not doing them any service. So for the people who don't come with those biases and may be interested in, in, in checking this out, how can they do so? Will it be uh, available for streaming in perpetuity or, or what, what's that situation? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, one of the wonderful things about this partnership with All Arts um, is that you can go to allarts.org backslash everything for Dawn, and you can now see episodes one through six. They're being released um, two each week. Um, so this Friday, we'll, we'll be releasing seven and eight, and then the following Friday, uh, nine and ten. Um, and then they'll be available to stream. Um, All Arts has an app that you can get on your Roku or your um, Apple TV or your Amazon Fire Stick. So you can download the app and just click on those, you know, those shows the same way you would click on the new episode of Game of Thrones on your TV and engage with it in the same process and in the same environment and space that you would. So that's going to be available that way. And um it's they're just going to be there and it's a it's a really interesting thing for us as a company um used to creating live performances you know you have your 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 week run your two week run and then it's over and if you do have a video of it it's you know it's an archival video so you can see what you know the costumes look like and more or less what the sound looked like but it wasn't really created for that well this is actually a video opera it was created for the platform that it's being consumed on and will be consumed on in perpetuity. So it really feels like it has a huge life ahead of it, um, even as we're just rolling out the episodes on a week-to-week basis now. That's incredible. So again, that website is allarts.com slash everything from Dawn. Allarts.org. Allarts.org backslash everything for Dawn. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you know, my final question, I, I think there uh, is a lot of uh, headway uh, being made when it comes to engaging people who are new to the art form. I think we often forget about folks who uh, divested completely from the art form. Maybe they have bad experiences or or because of the tradition surrounding what we call opera, uh, feel like they could never see themselves in it. I wonder how uh, you engage getting some of those audiences back that may have previously said opera isn't for me. Yeah. You know, Carrie, I don't, I don't know that we think about them like separately from other audiences. Um, I do think coming back to this point where um, if people have written them off, um, I remember there was a, a donor who we were pursuing at some point and she said, I'm not an opera person. Um, and I said, oh, well, why, why not? I was like, I just, I've been, I don't like it. You know, it's not my thing. Um, and they came to the show because they were interested in the artists and they left and they said, oh, well, 
I like this kind of opera. And so just constantly trying to have those experiences where if you can market something a little bit differently, if you could create some imagery around it that connects to the different kind of visual language um, and situates it within a different context, like the television, um, I think that those entry points are, are the ones that are going to win back those people who have written it off. Um, because, you know, it's not like getting dressed up and going to the Metropolitan Opera. It's just not the same thing. It's not asking the same thing of you. It's not putting you on public display in the same way. You know, you don't have the same barriers of feeling inadequate in terms of how you're dressed or where you're seated or I want to leave at the intermission. It's like, no, you can do this in the, in the confines of your own home. And if you decide to stop watching it, no one knows. No one's going to judge you. It's your thing. And I think um, that is a way of, uh, of moving the art form forward, putting it in front of new eyes and giving people um, opportunities to, to experience it like it's for the first time um, and to see it for the first time um, and to give it a chance again. there from Riot Girl at a Rave, a Riot Girl at a Rave. You know, as you can hear there, Scott, is not only um, contemporary sounds and approaches, but subject matter Themes. that you don't always hear in so-called uh, classical music. Do you think it's the subject matter that is going to uh, pull in new audiences? Is, is it the fact that it's serialized and in chunks for people to enjoy that's doing it? Probably just a, a mix of, of many things. But what, what do you think about those two aspects in particular, more contemporary subject matter and themes matched with a serialized approach? And it's in a language you can understand. That as well. The, you know, all yeah. of that is contributing to it. Um, We've talked about this a couple of times uh, at the beginning of the pandemic that somebody, uh, an opera company partnered with a production house out of necessity. Right. They needed to do something to get their, their season started and to give their listeners something. Mm -hmm. So it looks like it's stuck. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you can uh, check out uh, that that music and more um, streaming on allarts.org. And, and she, uh, you know, she's ahead. talking about, yeah, she's talking about, she she dropped acid and now she's got to go and be with her family and she hasn't come down fully yet. Yeah. Who among us, who among us has not been there? <laughs> Maybe not the coming home <laughs> part. I Cause I was good and grown, but I, I hear kid, you. I, I hear kid. you. So yeah. Uh, thanks again to Aaron Siegel for joining me. Shout out to everyone um, at experiments and opera. Just uh, so exciting, you know, to see yet another new approach to this art form in an effort to, Get folks interested in it. I think that's something. I'm definitely going to stream this and uh, listen to some opera. Report so. back. <laughs> I shall. All right. Well, we're uh, moving into the uh, final movement for this week. And uh, I want to share 
a classic, and it, it's going to be a, a transcription of a classic. A nice guitar arrangement here of Midnight Train to Georgia is made famous, of course, by Gladys Knight and the Pips. Let's listen to a little bit of this, and we'll say a few things in this final movement. Romantic flamenco music, Spanish flamenco guitar favorites, and acoustic guitar ambient music. So, you know, of course, Gladys Knight isn't uh, flamenco, but definitely fits into that acoustic ambient, you know, certainly classical for many reasons, as far as I'm concerned. And she was finally honored by the Kennedy Center. She was among the uh, musicians and uh, artists, mm. uh, people of note to be honored at the uh, Kennedy Center Arts, finally. alongside Tanya Leon, who you know is really making a name in uh, uh, Western classical music uh, these days. And uh, you know, the, my my first thought is that we're just now you know honoring her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know. If anything, and I almost posted this on social media, I didn't. But, you know, for people who feel like they're really doing some phenomenal things, we're talking about all of these organizations, Salestina Experiments and Opera, you know, what uh, uh, WFMT is doing, you know, the recognition (laughs) comes so much later, you know, as it's laid out by these godmothers and godfathers uh, of, of, of music out there just now getting their recognition. So, you know. Shout out to Gladys Knight and congratulations to Gladys Knight specifically, you know, just someone who I think really, you know, helps form that foundation of American music, even American classical music. On that piece of music specifically, Midnight Train to Georgia, I think it's an incredible song. I don't like listening to it a lot. I feel like we've talked about this on uh, Triloquy before. I've had to move around a lot Mm -hmm. for my career. And the last thing, you can speak to this, the last thing that you want to do when you leave home, leave your hometown for some sort of opportunity, some sort of dream, some sort of mission is to come back, you know, having given up, you know, come back with your tail between your legs and just getting a job back in the hometown, doing whatever you can do. That uh, fear, I'll I'll be vulnerable, that fear for me, I think is just uh, poked at. When I when I hear that song "Midnight Train to Georgia," as beautiful of a song as it is, it just it's one of those tracks that's had that has been I'll say uh, difficult for me to listen to because I don't want to take the midnight train back to Tennessee. I'm sure you don't want to take the midnight train to Omaha because it know? doesn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm sure you've been a Gladys Knight fan for for for, for oh, many ages. Any, any words of congratulations to her? It's about time. I didn't realize that she hadn't gotten that honor yet yeah well that's the that's the that's the more positive side of 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 this week's triloquy just wanted to make sure i gave some room uh for that but you know there's more and more tragedy as we move forward and you know it's starting to it's starting to get a little spooky out here you know we we've been talking you know uh, off and on these past several weeks about the rise of anti-semitism in 
popular culture and, and those sorts of things. It's one thing for me to, you know, think about that and ways to be of support, to be an ally, to be an accomplished to Jewish communities. It's something different, you know, when, uh, at least for the individual, when a community that you belong to or align with yeah. is at the center of a thing. I'm a black man. I've been black all my life. So I feel like I've always, you know, to in some way have that sort of target that's uh, on my back. We're doing it doubly with what's happening uh, in, uh, you know, with anti-LGBT bigotry mm -hmm. out here. You know more about what's been happening these past few days than I do. How about you give us an, an update? Well, you know about the mass shooting that took place at the nightclub in Denver. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how many weeks ago that was. Um, but most recently, there was uh, this big power. I remember reading about it late Saturday night about a big power outage that took place somewhere in North Carolina. And the speculation was that substations had been shot up simultaneously, several of them, in order to deprive power to a drag show. And in the meantime, they also deprived about 40,000 residents right. of power that probably isn't going to be back this week. I mean, <clears throat> and it's wintertime. Right. And, oh. Um, I mean, it's still, it, you know, it's North Carolina, but it still gets chill. Oh, you yeah. Know, down, and, um, the parts to repair these things aren't just something you go over to the shelf and get right. and put it in. This is special infrastructure. It's that's specialized. Yeah. It's specialized and it's, it's going to take some time. Uh, the FBI has joined the investigation. So, uh, who knows? They might be looking at it as domestic terrorism. And, I'm also thinking about this woman who doesn't want to make a gay website, I guess, out of Colorado. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, and that's reached the Supreme Court. When I think about the through lines to all of these things, I, I try to think about uh, through lines of solutions when it comes to getting rid of this anti-Semitism, this racism, this anti-LGBT bigotry, of course, the patriarchy. For me... When I think about a through line, I think about humanity seeing people as um, just a person, mm -hmm, you know, just mm -hmm. just valuing the sanctity and the the sacred nature of being alive, being mm -hmm. alive as a human. That's something that we talk about all the time in, in my Buddhist practice. I know that, you know, misses a lot of people. So I'm always just trying to think about how can we inspire true humanity how can we teach one another to really value each other's lives with life being that sacred thing and i think about the arts i feel like the arts has a responsibility we can talk about diversity and equitable programming i feel like in light of everything that's happening arts institutions of all types have the opportunity and ultimately the responsibility to center members of these marginalized communities, at least members of those communities who have created music, all to the point of affirming the human nature of these people. Maybe uh, the the folks whose minds need uh, to be shifted and changed aren't listening to classical radio, aren't in the concert hall. That does not mean that the arts can't do anything. And I feel like really centering today's people, especially uh, today's people who uh, are uh, from historically marginalized communities, to center their stories through the music, to center their perspectives and their humanity, that may be a way to 
get uh, society going in another direction because all of the hate and violence that's coming from many different directions, for me, it's getting hard to ignore. Mm -hmm. I imagine it would be. So you have said that you don't really pay much attention to the news. Not these days. So when did you find out about this and how? Uh, every, every now and again in my work day, if I don't want any music on in the background or something, I'll just mute the TV and turn it on uh, CNN or one of the news stations. And that's when I saw this uh, run across the bottom of the screen, the, the, the ticker. Uh, yeah, uh, again, we're, we're talking about a lot of things. Uh, these days and a lot of different bigotries, a lot of different people pointing fingers at, at other people. But at the end of the day, you know, all marginalized people are at risk, you know, whether you're Jewish or whether you're a black person or whether you're gay or whether you're a woman or uh, whether you are disabled, have different abilities. I mean, it just seems like no one out here is safe. And that seeing like I've been saying, that seeing each other's human nature, for me, is the only thing I can think of at this point. Are you second, are you giving second thoughts before you go out? Like if you, mm. if you and Del were going to go out somewhere, are you thinking now, well, maybe I should dress a different way, or maybe we shouldn't go to certain venues? What, how yeah. is, what kind of impact is it having on you that, that way? Well, like I said, I've been black all my life, so I, right. I, you know, I'm just used to viewing the world, thinking about the world in a different way. So I'm not going to dress differently or or go to different places. But um, I I mean, I'm I'm definitely going to double think going to a gay bar. It's not like me and Dell just hang out at the gay bars, you know, the, these days, right. you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little old, but, uh, you know, I would definitely double think doing something like that. I've even, you know, been a little shaky about movie theaters for a long time. You know, Wakanda Forever was the first time I was in a in a commercial uh, movie theater for many years. Mm -hmm. I had I had never experienced reclining chairs and things in a in a movie theater. <laughs> that's that's how long it had been. Mm. Um, so you know, maybe I'm not changing the way that I move, but it's it's hard to uh, not consider it. I mean, what 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 about you? Are, are you Looking over your shoulder and in, in, in whatever spaces you're uh, filling, filling when you're not at work. In my car. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a long while when I wasn't even putting more than $5 of gas in my, in my car at a time. Mm. I'm thinking if you're going to carjack me, you're going to be driving my shit around all day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're going to get about 20 miles. So do you, have a, <laughs> do you have a means of trying to see through all of the muck and mud of violence and bigotry as it's been popping up in, in many different places. How, what's your, what's your refuge? How do you put your mind at ease or decide uh, a, a way to uh, have a positive impact or what, what, what's your engagement with this reality that we're living in? Wow. I'm, I just, I, I don't know because I feel like such a shut in. <laughs> sure. But I mean, part of it is workload. And the other part of it is when I'm done with the work, I want to lay the hell down. Yeah. I don't want to go out and stand and listen to some band that I don't know or sit and listen to, you know, uh, an orchestra play something that I know how it goes. No. What I'll probably do is go over and pour myself a beer or make a drink and sit next to Radar and have as little stimulus as possible. You know, this is where my activism, you know, really gets activated. You know, having the platforms that I have had and have, I I can't not do nothing. I can't not say 
nothing. You know, not all of us are going to be on the streets marching. Not all of us are going to be infiltrating the Proud Boys and try to report to the FBI or whatever they have going on. Not all of us have radio programs and podcasts and opportunities to produce concerts and those things. That's where I feel like the work is. You know, I've 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 said it, you know, over many years now. This this art form, the, these institutions that belong to classical music have to break down those walls and help the rest of us change this world, help the rest of us quell this violence. We have to stop sitting on these ivory towers because, as it's so grim to say, but I think at this point appropriate to say, can we skip the part where gunmen go into a concert hall and now we're paying attention or now we're trying to uh, engage these things directly? Can we skip that part? And just do the right thing now. That's mm. that. That is the question that I have to every leader, every person in any position of power in any arts organization. If your arts organization that you engage, that you work for, whatever, is opposed to centering people of color and marginalized people, are they all that different from the men cutting off the nose of forty thousand people despite their face? Mm. You know, is there really that much separation between people who want to destroy? marginalized people and organizations that want to continue to center dead white men is there really all that difference maybe i'm maybe i'm reaching maybe i'm stretching but i can't help but to throw that into the conversation again considering the extent to which this violence of on course. all sides seems to be cropping up so we we've come we've gotten to the point where unprecedented has no meaning yeah because every day, <laughs> because is every day, right? It's like, oh, okay. So I'm I'm supposed to be outraged or uh, emotionally impacted all over again. Uh, sorry, man, that's a dead socket. So it's then, not, how, so then, how about we take unprecedented action? How about we do classical programming like it's never been done before? How about we have conversations around this art form like they have never been had before? Let's really push the needle and do something drastically different because we see that we are in drastic desperate times out here rest in peace and rest in power to everyone who has lost their lives or been impacted by loss of life as it relates to this bigotry i have to say specifically when it comes to this anti-lgbt bigotry gays do your hair gays cook your food gays write your music gay pro gays produce your podcasts and, and other content especially this one here we are not going anywhere. We benefit you. We all benefit each other. Let's see each other's humanity. Let's stop people in their tracks when they make some offhanded racist or bigoted comment. Let's call this stuff out. Let's not be afraid. Let's take unprecedented action and respond to these unprecedented times. I hope we're here to see y'all next week. I hope nobody shoots me for being gay or black or something. Again, not to be grim, but this is really something that we have to stop ignoring and, and uh, face head on. Thank you so much for all of the continued support. Shout out again to Celestina. Happy to have you uh, as a partner, and we will see y'all next week.